1: I was cut to the core. And so I told her, I said, I think I think I went to medical school for the wrong reason. We talked about it for a long time and eventually she said, I I never really thought you'd make a very good doctor anyway.
2: <laughs>
3: I take Zyrtec every day. It helps. But sometimes it doesn't work.
2: And it's just because it's the pollution in the air?
3: I guess. I don't know what Pollution it
2: is. or pollen? Bee pollution?
3: <laughs> pollen pollution. Yeah. Bee pollen pollution. Yeah.
2: I occasionally have allergies and it really stinks. It's it, You feel like it's not a real illness. Right. But it makes you feel worse than a cold. A hundred
3: times worse. Yeah. yeah. It's not like I would get everyone sick if I stayed. Right. But I would just sit in my chair and wish I was laying down,
2: lying. and I would get grumpy. You wish you were lying down.
3: Yeah, lying down. That's correct. That's what I said. The
2: <laughs> subjunctive form of to I, I don't yeah. know either. No, 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 no. It's <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, it doesn't. I, I, I wish it, it doesn't, doesn't. Lying have a direct, down. It's subjunctive. No. I well, I wish I were. That's uh-huh. the subjunctive. But lying and laying is not a subjunctive oh, it's issue. A it's whether it has mm-hmm. a direct object. If you are lying down, it doesn't have a direct object. If you were laying your things down, you would be laying your things down.
3: Okay. <laughs> yeah, I really need to go back to bed. We we were on a podcast last week, and people should check it out if they haven't already. we My got... dad
2: listened to it. What do you think? He said it was fun. Cool. He That's said good. it was 15 minutes of shooting the breeze. Fourth of July. 5th. That's accurate. That's exactly what we did last week.
3: Yeah, we absolutely shot the breeze for 15 minutes, as we do every week here in this
2: right the calling intro (laughs) the space yeah (laughs) who do you have on the calling this week
3: so this week i have a guy named dan clare anyone ever heard of him he's Uh a lesser known figure but he actually uh started a a network of churches of anglican churches in washington dc he's the rector of church of the resurrection in washington dc um he's originally from florida and so he came he sort of worked his way up from florida to Uh, the dc area and one of the things that i thought was most fascinating about this is that he was went to a college he was sort of a student leader in charge of the baptist student union there he used to be a baptist and uh during that time he
2: changed his views on hierarchies apparently i guess
3: so well this may have something to do with it. Is during that time he was faced with an entire town thinking that the rapture was about to happen And then the rapture didn't happen. It was a very serious thing, like more serious than you think. Like people had their sold their homes, right? People sold their homes, had their pets put down. It was that sort of a thing. This is pre internet. We talked a little bit. My mouth
2: is wide open, (laughs) people listening.
3: So it's uh yeah, it's an interesting story. I won't tell all the details. I feel like I've shared too much already. But That's a great teaser. Yeah. The
2: pets being put down. Adds a real dramatic, it's a vivi- arc vivid image to the narrative, right?
3: Yeah. Um, before we get to that, I wanted to f- take a moment to point out the calling is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. You know all about it. I think if you listen to this program, it offers redemptive, honest coverage of the church, people, events that shape the culture. And as a subscriber, each year you get all sorts of things. You get ten issues plus like a bunch of online stuff. We've got a special deal. For you who listen to The Calling, a year-long subscription at our lowest rate yet, $10.
2: A dollar per issue, folks.
3: A dollar per issue.
2: That's like, just don't get the extra guacamole on your Chipotle burrito once a month, and you'll have enough money saved Six up. Six months.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. And
2: you'll have enough saved that checks up out. <laughs> for the whole year.
3: So save that up for a year, starting a year ago, and then spend <laughs> it now. Go to orderct.com slash thecalling to subscribe. You'll be supporting thoughtful, essential journalism and helping us to continue to produce episodes of The Calling every week. Here's Dan Glair talking about the rapture that didn't happen and other things. You said you were an introvert. So is conferences in general like a, an incredibly exhausting experience? It's hard work. It's yeah. hard work to stay
1: engaged yeah. with so many good things to learn, and also one of the main reasons I'm here is to meet other people, and that's uh, early before the conference and yeah. during the conference and late into the evening. And this is uh, <laughs> this is eight days of travel for me, two conferences back wow. to back. So What's the other one? Our national assembly for our denomination. Okay. So yeah, there's a lot.
3: What's the what's the denomination? We're an Anglican
1: church. We're part of the
3: yeah, uh, the Anglican church. Okay, good. Yeah. So, um, so when you're done with this conference, you're is do you still have the next one coming? The, the assembly is that That's coming right. up? Yeah, I fly to Charlotte. Okay, and then you'll go home, and you'll do what to relax?
1: Uh, I'll see my wife and kids and rest with them. We'll feast and hang out. Yeah, go go to the park yeah. or watch a movie or something. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So
3: this is sort of the introductory question mm-hmm. to start us off. What do you think of as your calling?
1: I, I think I'm called to be a pastor. Mm-hmm. A, a simple, I, I joke around, I'm a pastor on Capitol Hill, but I really think of myself as a simple country pastor. Yeah. Uh, just happened to be called to the big city. So how long have you been been in D.C.? We moved to D.C. in 1999. ninety uh-huh. And I came originally to work for a seminary, and um, we ended up starting the Church of the Resurrection in our home in 2003. Okay, I've been pastoring the church since then. Yeah. yeah. Wh- where did you grow up? I grew up in Florida. Florida, fifth generation Floridian. Okay, cool. Yeah. So uh,
3: were your were your parents
1: were they Christians? They were. They are. And uh, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. Okay. We attended many different churches as we moved around a lot around the state of Florida. And it was the rise of the, um, the mega church. So we mm. were a part of some mega churches towards the end of my time in high school. So I got to see lots of different Baptist churches as right. a kid.
3: Do you, do you kind of, so were you, did you also experience some small church situations? I, yeah,
1: small church in the early days.
3: Did you have a, a really clear preference? Like, oh, after experiencing
1: those two things, did you prefer one over the other, the small versus big? I think I saw good things and bad things in all of those churches. Yeah. I think as a more of a type A personality, a, a, someone who's driven, I never had problems knowing the leaders and um, connecting, mm-hmm. and as a, even as a teenager. Yeah. Uh, but I, I can see how in the megachurch, mm-hmm. if you're not type A, Right, how hard it is to know people who are in power, yeah, and how easy it is to fall through the cracks, yeah, 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 I've had that experience too i've I've really appreciated
3: small churches because I don't trust myself to just do all the things and be all like be a part of the church in the way that I need to, yeah, so it's really helpful for me. To know that I'm gonna have someone's gonna notice if I'm gone. That's right. That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That's cool.
1: So, how long were you in Florida? So I went to college in the University of Florida mm-hmm. and stayed there for graduate school. Oh, wow! And then went to seminary after that in Florida, in Orlando. Wow! And after finishing seminary, my wife and I moved from orlando to washington dc so you were in florida your
3: entire life for the most part until you went to dc yeah okay so i want to i want to talk about florida then for a long time because so when you were when you were being uh when you were in florida being raised as a christian would at what point do you think you became a christian um as an as an infant i was yeah. raised
1: as a christian all yeah. my life sure yeah um,
3: okay so and and when did you feel that call to be a pastor i
1: think i think that was slow in coming i think that i had moments in um in high school and in college when i was really drawn to to being engaged as a leader in the church in one way or another mm-hmm. um but I resisted it. And I think it's a, it's a pretty important part of my story. I was in, in the sciences, um, at, as an undergraduate and I was involved in the marching band at the University of Florida. That was my extracurricular. Mm-hmm. And my former youth pastor from the church I attended in high school came to speak at the Baptist Student Union and he invited me to come and hear him speak. Mm-hmm. And I did. And then he challenged me to get involved at the Baptist Student Union and, and I, I took his dare and I did. Yeah. And then some, uh, some pretty crazy things happened at the Baptist Student Union <laughs> right after I got involved. I, when I was elected president there, uh-huh. um, starting my sophomore year, there was a movement in the city, uh, 88 reasons why the rapture will occur in 1988. Wow. It was based on a book that was pretty popular uh-huh. in, in many circles. And the largest Baptist church in the city at the time got on board with this and started preparing people for the rapture in the fall of 1988. Oh, my gosh. And the campus minister of the Baptist Student Union was um, was ill. He had amnesia, and he was hospitalized. Mm-hmm. And so there really weren't any adults in charge of the Baptist Student Union. And as an unsupervised 19-year-old leader of a ministry of 300 people, I felt especially left behind when the rapture happened and we mm. were all still there the next day. Mm-hmm. And, um, how did you
3: like in the build-up to that? How were people preparing
1: for that? There were some very crazy things that happened. There was, um, there was one family in the church who put all of their pets to sleep so their pets wouldn't be left behind. Oh my gosh. Um, and, and another family that sold their house and gave the money to non-Christian family. Wow. And, uh. So these were well known in the community. People were seriously committed to Rapture Day.
3: Why there? Like, was it just it's just the influence of that pastor at that church? The influence of that pastor, and I
1: think also the Christian bookstore in town had a had an outsized influence on okay on that particular segment of the of the church.
3: It's interesting to think that, like, I wonder if something like that would happen today, just because like the internet. Like, it seems like the internet would almost dilute a lot of the influence that those particular things like the local church in that area and the Christian bookstore in that area would have had.
1: Yeah. You're probably right. That's interesting. Yeah. So did you, had you bought into that at all? I was kind of on the fence. I didn't know what to make of it. And in the the next day, the day after the rapture, I spent (laughs) a lot of time at the Baptist student union talking with people who were, who were furious and rightfully so yeah people who had bought in either way okay yeah and and they they asked really good questions and i didn't have very good answers because the the little book that argued for the rapture on that particular day um, used different verses from from the prophets of the old testament and from revelation and i just didn't know enough to be able to sort out those things mm-hmm. and there's one fellow at the Baptist Student Union who worked there as a kind of housekeeper. And, um, he took me aside and he said, I think, I think you would really benefit from reading the Bible in a different way, mm-hmm. learning how to read the Bible as a narrative. And he was the first person in my life who, who, uh, welcomed me into a, a more, Robust, grand story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, yeah. and understanding the different parts of the Bible within that grand story, and that started a, a period of of about eight years for me of, mm-hmm. of undergrad and graduate school.
3: When and he was, when he introduced you to that idea, he talked about it as as reading the Bible as a narrative.
1: Uh, maybe. Maybe using different language, but that's—I'm okay. that, sure—that's what he was—he was inviting me into. Sure, yeah, yeah. So we we learned together, yeah. uh, he and I, and other friends over the next few years, and mm-hmm. um, it was a really robust time for me. In, in I think being discipled in a way that I hadn't ever been before. Sure. Even, even though I grew up in the church, I just hadn't had that kind of depth of training in the Bible itself. I really mm-hmm. fell in love with the scriptures through that time yeah
3: so you felt kind of solidified in your faith at that point once you started reading
1: i did scripture in that way i did thinking of it in that way and the the call to leadership you know i felt it at that time because i felt greatly responsible for what was happening to these people right um i was in charge and i hadn't i hadn't been a very good watchman and so um i felt responsible but the idea of becoming a pastor was pretty silly to me. I mean, pastors don't make any money. Hmm. and How old were you at this uh, time? I, I was uh, 19, 20. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I applied to medical school. Mm-hmm. I got a full scholarship to the medical school. Okay. And um, and I did that because it was free.
3: Wow. Yeah. So so you went to medical school. And during that time, you were attending church, I assume. I was. Yeah. And what what kind of church
1: was that this was an evangelical free church okay it had uh the elders of the church were every one of them of a, a, either a professor or someone who was very very competent in their particular field mm-hmm. um, all people who had really thought deeply about the christian faith and i found in them uh, great models great role models of mature Christians, yeah. So I was I was drawn to them. I was drawn to the exegetical preaching of the church. Mm-hmm. Loved it. In fact, I did. I took some time off from school and I worked there as a pastoral intern. Oh wow! But I still went to medical school after that yeah. because pastors don't make any money.
3: Yeah. So you. So would you say you were feeling that calling and maybe grappling with it, or were you still kind of unaware? Of the calling. I think I was feeling it. I think I was putting it out of my mind, though. Sure. Yeah. So, what convinced you yeah. either that pastors make a lot of money,
1: which we know <laughs> isn't true, or that it was yeah. okay to do it otherwise? Well, I got married to Elise, and um, she brought a depth of devotional life into our marriage and into my life that mm. i just i simply hadn't had mm-hmm. and um, i had been growing in knowing god's word for years yeah she had been growing in worshiping god for years huh. and we learned a lot from one another in our first first year of marriage and on uh ever since we continue to teach one another but on our first anniversary mm-hmm. during my fourth year in in medicine um she and I went on a, a week anniversary vacation trip, and we set aside a day for prayer and fasting. And it was during that day I was reading in the prophets, I was reading in Jeremiah about idolatry, I was reading about how the Israelites worshipped Yahweh on Saturdays, mm-hmm. and they worshipped the Queen of Heaven Sunday through Friday. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is certainly a lot like my life, yeah, because I'm involved in Christian things a little mm-hmm. and then I'm involved in pursuing my own wealth and success a lot mm-hmm. and I didn't tell my wife what I was reading or thinking about she was reading a separate passage she said let me read this to you it's so good it's like I've never heard it before let me read it to you it's Luke 12 yeah and she reads me the parable of the rich fool and I was cut to the core yeah wow yeah um, just thinking I'm I'm building bigger barns, yeah, and I'm not paying attention to the Lord at all, yeah. And so I told her, I said, I think, I think I went to medical school for the wrong reasons. <laughs> and we talked about it for a long time. And eventually, she said, I, I never really thought you'd make a very good doctor anyway. <laughs> <So.
3: laughs> that was actually something I was going to ask: Is what do you think would have happened if you ignored that uh, that calling yeah. and you went into the medical field? Well, you know. God
1: is, God is good to us. He's gracious to us. Mm -hmm. And I am sure that I would have known him as a physician. Yeah. Um, but we have had in the, in the 20 years since then, we've had so many terrific experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, after I dropped out of medical school and decided to go to seminary, we moved to Orlando, Florida. We moved into the Ronald McDonald House, and we lived there as as uh, resident managers. Wow! And they paid us to live there, and they wow. fed us. And my wife got a terrific job at the hospital, and I got a terrific job at the seminary. Mm-hmm. And I'm the only person I've ever known who's been in the black through seminary. Yeah. And God was taking care of us, and He was showing us, "Trust me, and I will I will provide." Yeah. Yeah. And it's been like that ever since. We've seen him provide for us financially and ecclesiologically and in in terms of friends and kids. And everything that we've needed has always been just at the right time. Mm-hmm. We've never had any need. And I think it was a hugely important lesson for me early on in ministry to be able to take risks. Because a lot of what ministry, pastoral ministry is about is... Mustering up courage to take a risk yeah. and to lead a congregation in taking a risk, yeah. and uh, and I was formed in risk taking at, at that time, right uh, at the beginning of my my sense of r- official pastoral call. Yeah.
3: yeah. Did you ever have? So did you ever have a time where you did take that risk because you had learned to, and then felt like you were right on the edge? You know what I mean? Like you were right on the edge of it not paying off somehow or it not panning out.
1: I think every risk that you take feels bigger than the last one. (laughs) Yeah. And yet when you look back at all of the leaps of faith that you've taken, they seem, they, they get smaller and smaller and you can see the Lord in those gaps caring for you. You can see his hand of, of protection. Yeah. And so, It's, I think it's really important to look back, see where you've been, and then to turn and take that leap. Yeah. Uh, Because it's that, it's that rhythm. It's a spiritual discipline of remembering, being thankful, and then looking forward and taking the leap. Yeah.
3: I think one thing that a lot of people deal with, whether they are called to the ministry, or like in my case, there was a time when I was called to the ministry, and then I felt like maybe I wasn't called to ministry. Mm -hmm. But in my case, I'd went to school, for a, for a theology degree and then I went to seminary for a theology degree mm-hmm. and then I was like, am I gonna is this gonna go to waste? I think a lot of people deal with that question of like sunk costs, you know? Yeah. You go to school for the specific thing and then suddenly you're not using it. And it have to be amplified so much in medical school. Like, am I am I giving up all of this work and all of this money and all of this stuff for this thing what was the – is there – can you see a way in which that wasn't a sunk cost? Like, can you see a way that it paid off somehow?
1: Uh, well, first of all, I was on scholarship, so I didn't leave the money behind. Sure. And, yeah. and that was God's kindness for a very cheap guy. That's me. <laughs> <You> know, <so laughs> yeah. He, he, yeah. He knew me, and he provided. And then secondly, during my time in medical school, I was a part of and eventually led the Christian Medical and Dental Society at the mm. school. And we had – any number of, of Bible studies and fellowships and then some pretty important ministry to particular students yeah. we cared for. We walked with a couple through separation and eventually getting them back together. Yeah. Um the the CMDFs worked as a kind of parachurch around them and supported them. And as I was Feeling God calling me out of medicine, that was at the time when my classmates were all graduating mm-hmm. from the program. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was i was coming to an end um, in, in being with them walk and walking through that season with them. And I, I felt very much done. And I left that behind yeah. and have never looked back and have never regretted it at all. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there.
3: The, uh, so you're obviously your pastor, so you're very involved in local church ministry. That's an understatement. (laughs) That's kind of like a super redundant, but, um, what is the thing you value most? Like, what is the thing you find yourself emphasizing a lot in your, in your local church ministry and in the pastorate?
1: I think that the, the importance of the scriptures as the foundation for who we are, mm-hmm. for, for what we do, um, for shaping our imaginations, it, it's it's really, really important for us in our context. And um, so I spend a lot of time um, talking about God's Word and inviting people into it mm-hmm. and trying to explain it as best I can, trying to equip people to understand it as well. Sure. And then shaping... Christian practices based on it, yeah. And I know that that sounds really old school, but I really think that that's <laughs> the pastor's job.
3: Yeah. There, was there a moment that was formative for you that kind of drove that idea home for you? Like that? Was there something that made
1: you go, "Yeah, this is what I'm about"? I think it goes back to the the rapture days. Yeah. Just feeling like this is the, this is our guidebook. Yeah. And it's very important that we understand it correctly. Right. right. Knowing how. How badly things can go if you don't understand it correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
3: you were you were, you did a seminary in Florida. I did. Uh, Reformed theological Reformed seminary in Orlando. Okay. So what brought you? Like, wh- how did you find your first pastorate? What was that like? What was that? And as I guess it, that pro- process probably started towards the end of your seminary career, right? So.
1: Uh, I, I had a job at the seminary, mm-hmm. and my job was as a recruiter. Yeah, and um, we worshipped in a wonderful church in Orlando called Saint Paul's Presbyterian Church that uses the Book of Common Prayer, or mm-hmm. when we were there, used the Book of Common Prayer as their liturgy. Okay, and uh, I loved the the liturgical worship, and I also loved the uh, approach to preaching that they had, which was uh, expo- expository and mm-hmm. uh, careful attention to the text. And um, I thought that was great. I thought uh, I would love to be the pastor of a church like this. Yeah. Um, but as a recruiter for the seminary, I I got to travel around a lot and see other Presbyterian churches. And I found that... That church that we attended in Orlando was really peculiar. <laughs> um, it was peculiar. <laughs> yeah. It was the only PCA church I knew of that used the Book of Common Prayer for its worship. Mm-hmm. And um, over time, I realized that we really belonged in uh, something that was, that was uh, committed to liturgical worship. Sure. Um, I found what I was looking for, at least on paper in the Anglican tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually we went to the elders of our church and asked if they would pray over us and send us down the street to the Episcopal Church. Yeah. And they did. And we worshipped in the Episcopal Church for the rest of my time in seminary. And I tried to get ordained in the Episcopal Church, but they wouldn't have me. They did not welcome me in. Explain what that process is like, trying to
3: get ordained. Because uh, I'm actually not fam- I'm a Southern Baptist, Yeah. so I'm like super un... Familiar, I mean, relatively unfamiliar with how that works. So how does one even, like, start to say, I would like to be ordained in your denomination?
1: It it varies from diocese to diocese within the Episcopal Church. Mm -hmm. And um, most of them have some sort of interview with the bishop's office. Mm -hmm. And then um, if if that goes well, you can begin with some sort of lay discernment committee in your local church. Okay. but you have to be within a certain range of beliefs. Yeah. And um, in my case, I was just simply too conservative huh. uh, to be welcomed in to the, the places where I tried to be ordained in the Episcopal Church. Right. And um, so after some time of trying to be ordained, I eventually – I was at the end of seminary. I needed a job. So I spoke with the president of our seminary, a man named Luther Whitlock. hmm And he said, we would like to start a new campus of RTS in Washington DC. Hmm. How would you like to go to Washington and be our man on the ground there? And so that's why we moved to DC in 1999. Yeah. To start an extension program of RTS. Okay. And, um, I got to lead the effort through the, through our initial accreditation and then hand it off to some others in 2003. Yeah. Um, and in the meantime, we started a church at our house. And right as we were starting the church, um, there was an opportunity to be ordained as an Anglican minister, mm-hmm. not affiliated with the Episcopal Church, through the Anglican Church of Rwanda. Oh, wow. And I was put in touch with Rwandan Christians who thought that my beliefs were well within the range of orthodoxy and were very glad to, to commission me and, and send me to D.C. as a missionary. Yeah.
3: So the Rwandan church was willing to recognize that you had these beliefs that were acceptable. Yes. Are, does that mean that within the United States no one else would in terms of the, the
1: Anglican denomination so at the time? There there were Episcopalians at the time. There continue to be Episcopalians now right. who, who have more uh, – traditional orthodox christian beliefs Mm -hmm. Um, but in in so many cases the process of moving towards ordination is extremely complicated Mm. highly political and it's simply very difficult to to be ordained yeah if you're coming from a more conservative orthodox position yeah and in in this case uh the the dam was starting to break Mm -hmm. and Around the year 2000, many, many people who were backed up in the logjam of the Episcopal church system found a home in some global south Anglican province. Right. Whether Rwanda, Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, the southern Cone, mm-hmm. various places were saying, we will come to the aid of the North American continent yeah. and provide Episcopal oversight for the sake of orthodox anglican church planning across across the united states and canada
3: so that's why you planted a church in dc or is it
1: we felt the need to plant a church there Mm -hmm. period okay and we wanted to do it within an anglican context if they would have me yeah i wanted to have cover covering somehow yeah um but we we sensed that we had to do it regardless of whether the anglican church would have us for what,
3: what was the, was were there reasons yeah. in mind that you had that you wanted to plan
1: a church? Yeah. Um, in the late nineties, there weren't that many evangelical churches in DC. Things okay. have changed yeah. quite a bit now. Yeah. But, um, at that time we noticed two commutes that were happening on Sundays. Um, one was blacks who had moved out of the city mm-hmm to the suburbs, mm-hmm. were commuting back in to go to traditional black churches on mm-hmm. Sundays, yeah, and then evangelicals who were moving into the city as the city was becoming popular again mm-hmm. uh, were driving out to the big box churches around the Beltway, yeah, in order to worship, yeah, and we were we were one of those families. We were living in the city, but we were driving about forty five minutes down to Falls Church, Virginia, to go to. A particular mega church and uh, one day as we were making that drive my wife and I were talking about it and, and we were talking about our neighbors and talking about um, how will we explain to our neighbors if one of if <laughs> one of our neighbors wanted to go to church with us yeah how would we explain the drive past 50 or 60 church buildings <laughs> along the way yeah to one of many uh, church options that seemed to be all the same, more or less. How could we explain that to them? And I think for me, I've become increasingly concerned about a rootedness of the church in neighborhoods for the sake of local Christian expression. Mm -hmm. The the fabric of the city depends upon local churches that are embodying the gospel Mm. for their neighborhoods. Yeah. And when everybody is (laughs) commuting— Um, that means that nobody is really attending to uh, the the spiritual needs of Fourth and Georgia Streets Northwest, right, or, or some other coordinates. Yeah, and um, so it's it's a very old notion. It's the parish approach to church, mm-hmm. and uh, we felt very strongly that we needed to be practicing our faith where we live. Yeah, and and we felt like this would go a long way to heal the brokenness of the city if there were neighborhood churches that were vibrant churches again and people were attending them and living in the same place.
3: And you, so you started with how many people in your church?
1: We started with about a dozen people uh, on the sofas in our living room. That seems like a good start
3: from scratch
1: to get that many people, like, committed to your... Yeah, I was... By that time, I was the dean of a little seminary, so That's right. I, I knew a lot of people. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, cool. So, um, so that for, you had a first service, I guess. We had services in our living room uh-huh. uh, for for a while on Sunday evenings, and then um, one of my students at the seminary in my Greek Greek exegesis class, I think, was an elder at a church on Capitol Hill, mm-hmm. Christ Our Shepherd Church. Okay, and this is a Fabulous building very close to the Library of Congress, very close to the Capitol building itself, and they weren't using their building on Sunday evenings, and they invited us in uh, at a basically a gift of a rental price, mm-hmm. and uh, they welcomed us in, they prayed for us, and they allowed us to establish as a church on Capitol Hill wow. in 2004 is when we started worshiping there, and we've worshiped there ever since.
3: How many people were a part of your church at that point?
1: We probably moved into that building with thirty people. I okay. would yeah. imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. We've never been very good at counting. No, that's we fair. Still yeah. Still aren't. yeah. Yeah. Um,
3: okay. So when uh, what was your so you had kind of become you were the pastor of that church that you started. Yes. Um, and you is this are you still the pastor of that church? I am. So you have had one pastorate. Is that right? Yes. And I've had been life. a
1: pastor before. Yeah. So. I've had to learn on the job. That is fascinating. I don't know a lot of people who have
3: only had one pastorate. That's interesting.
1: And I've, from time to time, people reach out to me and say, "Would you like to interview for a job at our yeah. church?" And I, I, have to tell them I, <laughs> I, I can, but I, I don't think I could do it. Yeah, because yeah. I don't really know how to do it. Yeah. And if I, if I were to change to a different location. It would probably take me ten years to figure out how to do it.
3: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Because you you literally started like in your home. Yeah. If for that context in which you live. Yeah. And you've just acquired. You're just kind of like building, like the almost like a symbiotic relationship, I would guess, with this church. Very much so.
1: Do are you? Do you have um, multiple pastors at this church? Over the years, we've had a lot of different people who have come through. Okay. When we started, we had. From the very beginning, when we were still meeting on the sofas, we had two pastoral interns. Yeah. we've always had interns or curates, people who are finishing seminary, uh, fresh out of seminary training. And uh, so in some cases, we've been able to send them nearby within the city to start new churches. Yeah. And in other cases, we've been able to send them far away to start churches in other cities. So here we are in Chicago. Right now, today, and on Sunday, I was visiting a minister who was trained and ordained in our church mm-hmm. and sent to Chicago to start a new church here. Yeah. There's a thriving congregation in Uptown, and uh, and I had the privilege of meeting them and preaching there on nice. Sunday. is a huge, terrific honor. That's awesome. There. Yeah. That's really
3: cool. So, is a lot of your congregation transient then, or?
1: It's the nature of the city, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And so... That makes it really easy to draw a crowd. Yeah. Because there are so many people who are displaced. Yeah. And an urban life is lonely. And if you are a warm and welcoming congregation, you can draw people in. Yeah. Um, And I have friends who are starting churches in places where there isn't that kind of transience. Mm -hmm. And they find it very, very difficult. Mm, Yeah. And they sometimes they compare themselves to what's happening at res DC. And I just, I say it's apples and oranges. It's totally different. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the upside is the ability to draw a crowd. The downside is that you make good friends and they move away.
3: Yeah. How do you deal with that? Does that wear on you?
1: You have to take it to the Lord again and again and again. You have to go to him and say, thank you for the, for the people that you've sent to be my friends. Yeah. And God bless them as they go. And I trust you, Lord, that you're going to bring people who fill the holes in my heart as I've said goodbye to these dear people. Yeah. And, uh, and it's something that I have to model for the rest of the congregation. Don't grow weary mm-hmm. in caring for those that God sends. Yeah. Um, don't, don't turn away the gifts that he sends us. I believe people are gifts and we have to receive them as such whether they're coming as sprinters and they're only with us for three years or whether they're coming as marathoners to stay.
3: Yeah. yeah. I spent a long time in uh, Louisville and Louisville is a similar thing. I mean, it's not quite the same, obviously, but it is a big seminary town and a lot of the churches you go to are full of just people who are coming in for two years and leaving. Yeah. And I remember like struggling so often my wife and I would talk about it a lot. Like the, this is a horrible struggle to have. It's like almost inexcusable, but there is this question of like, is it worth starting a relationship with people? Right. Do we really want to even go there? Because eventually it's going to, they're just going to leave again. Yes. You know, and especially when you know the date they're going to leave. It's like, once that's announced, it's like, well, I've been wanting to get to know them, but I guess it's pointless. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I know. I know. It's really hard. Yeah. It really is. And yet, um, this is the nature of a missional church. Yeah. A missional church will be dynamic in Mm -hmm. this way. And so either you, you, you expect it and you kind of program for it. Yeah. Or you're just tossed about by it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's better to go ahead and plan on it. And in some cases, send people out together to start new congregations. Right. Um, and commission those who go, no, ma- no matter what. Yeah. Equip them as best you can and commission them as they go.
3: In what ways has pastoral ministry changed you as a person?
1: Uh, well, <laughs> hopefully it's, it's made me more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. I, I hope so. And I think, um, I hope that people who were part of our church 2004 to 2006 say, Uh, if they were to come back and be a part of the church now, 10, 11, 12 years later, would, would see a different man. And I I say this often in the pulpit that we expect everybody to be changing Mm -hmm. that, uh, the, the worst thing is to be a part of a church for years and not to grow and change. And I expect that of the pastor as well. Yeah. So hopefully I've become more like Jesus. I, I think the, Urban life um, has its pressures, mm-hmm. and, and I find myself sometimes feeling kind of thin, as uh, as Frodo says, mm-hmm. and that's just from the pace of things. Yeah, and um, I think that the pastoral responsibilities of having to be on all the time and having to be an expert at everything all the time can make you a little bit paranoid, and so there's. There's regular work to be done to go back to the Lord and to say, um, I'm done mm-hmm. for the day. I'm going to rest now and I'm trusting you to take it from here. Yeah. And I'm handing it back to you. And I'm not the expert. I'm not omni competent. You are. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a challenge to yeah. turn off, unplug and trust Him. On a daily basis and on a weekly basis and so on to have those rhythms.
3: Can you talk about the temptation to be paranoid? Cause that caught, that caught my ear because it's, it's familiar to me. Like sure. the tendency to dwell on something or, or, or to f- like stress over a thing that's kind of already in the background somewhere. But can you talk about like, uh, maybe a situation or a common thing that causes you to become paranoid?
1: Yeah, I think we probably all have different uh areas where we're where we're specially sensitive. You sure. know, I'm I probably get paranoid about being caught off guard on some topic that I'm not ready to talk about. Mm. Um so feeling I need to be omnicompetent on all of the hot topics right at, of the day. Um I feel oftentimes uh, the the fear of of um You know, some important family in the church, um, being pulled away to a different place. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the, probably the, the biggest one is when key people in the church, key families go through crisis of one, one degree or another and just fearing that everything's going to fall apart. Yeah. Because of what's happening with them. Yeah. Or any kind of crisis in the church, like this is going to, it's going to, the whole thing is just a house of cards and it will all fall The down. church
3: itself. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, it is interesting to think about the church in
3: particular compared to other organizations. Sure. It's so <laughs> it's so fragile because it's so dependent on everyone. Yeah. Kind of, for lack of a better way of saying it, being cool, <laughs> you know, right, right. and uh, and being Christ-like and so at least trying to be Christ-like. Sure. So it's a little, it's kind of like a really cool uh, challenge to try and rely on God's Sovereignty to control those things and to like be have to let that go. Like right. we can't maintain control of this group of people. Yeah. You know,
1: and that's so those are internal threats. Sure. There are also external threats yeah. for a church plant. Will the church that we rent from continue to have the this friendly leadership and mm-hmm. continue to to care for us in the ways that they have? Mm, yeah. Um, will the city continue to be relatively uh, friendly towards evangelical churches and church plants. Will the laws related to being a nonprofit in the district of Columbia continue to change and become increasingly complex or health insurance and all these sort of external things which yeah. pile up. I don't think, I don't think people realize the um, proliferation of administrative responsibilities yeah. on small nonprofits. <laughs> yeah. Over the past two or three years, right between uh, the kind of uh, municipal and federal law changes that have happened, and then the health insurance changes, I think it's thousands of hours of volunteer hours, typically in small nonprofits. Yeah, and it burns out one volunteer after another. Right. Yeah, um, and I think that those sorts of things are external threats yeah. that. If you're a if you're a responsible leader, you worry about those things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: If you could talk to yourself back when you were first starting, sort of the path to the pastorate, you you ac- accepted the calling. Mm-hmm. You're on your way. What would you say to
1: him? I would say, be who you're, who you've been called to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, wear that uniform and trust that God's going to fill it out. Even though you feel really scrawny inside this enormous outfit <laughs> and, and and you feel like it, it doesn't fit. Um, trust in the Lord that he, that by his grace, you look good in that outfit, yeah. you know? Um, because I think with any kind of profession, go, I'll go back to medicine. There's a moment in medicine when you, you, Put on the lab coat. You put the stethoscope around your neck. Yeah. and You walk into a patient's room and you say, "I'm Dr. Claire, and I'm going to examine you." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's here's the uh, hospital gown to put on. You know, uh-huh. and, and you you have to fill out that lab coat and look like a doctor, even though you don't feel like it at all. Right. And um, and how do you do that? In any profession, you do that by trusting in the Lord and by by uh, leaning into His grace, so I think if I had trusted in the Lord more with regard to that calling, mm-hmm. I think I, I would have, I would have loved people a lot better mm. as a, as a pastor and mentor and friend.
3: You've been listening to the Calling. Dan Clare is the rector of Church of the Resurrection in Washington D.C. I don't think he's on Twitter. I couldn't find him. So. Can't follow him on Twitter. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Cray Allrad. Theme music by Lee Rosevere. Used under Creative Commons 4.0.